Hi, my name is Paul and I'm a member with Restored Church. If you're new, we want to welcome you and thank you for tuning in. We believe that the church is not an event, but a family that you belong to, so we'd love the opportunity to connect with you. If you want to learn more about our church or if we can help you in any way, please visit our website, restoredtemecula.church, and click on Contact. We also have a mobile app with resources, including our Sunday messages, information about upcoming events, and other ways to connect. You can download our app on Apple or Android app stores. With all that said, we hope you enjoy the message. It's good to see your faces this morning. It's good to be with you. Uh, this morning, we, like I was mentioning earlier, uh, we've got Grant Clark in with us today. And uh, many of you have met him or were you here a few weeks ago, but for those of you that haven't, uh, the Restored Story is, is a global one. It's a, it's a family of churches. It's multiple churches across the world. And uh, Grant is a part of that story. So Grant came from Durban, South Africa, which is sort of like the San Diego of South Africa. And uh, I got a chance to visit him and, and be in his home uh, three years ago. And uh, yeah, this is extended family for us. Grant and his wife, Michelle, uh, moved out here. And their daughter moved out here, I think, in the last like three or four months, basically, really getting established and set up like right now in San Diego. So they were church planners. They started a church called Harbor City in Durban. They just handed that church off recently. And now they're here with us, uh, in, not in Temecula, but in San Diego with Restored Uptown, their pastoral couple on staff. However, because we're part of a family of churches, we get to benefit. Southern California wins with ha by having them uh, here. So Grant is in. He's going to be continuing the series that we've been in, the Summer in the Psalms. So I just want to, we, Tom loves to talk about this, and I do too. Like, we want to have a culture of honor as a church community. We want to outdo one another in showing honor. So I just want to encourage you, like, would we show this man honor? Like, he's prepared this message. He's come to serve us two times in the last, I think, three weeks Three or four weeks, he is going above and beyond to care for this community and to partner with us and what God is doing here. So if we could just have a round of applause for Grant as he comes up. Come on up. <laughs> Grateful for you, bro. Thank you for serving us this morning. Enjoy. Thanks, dude. Very kind, you guys. Thanks for having me back. It was just a privilege to be here a few weeks ago and definitely a surprise to be back here this week. Um, I know you guys were looking forward to Andy and um, we did kind of make a joke that I could have dyed my hair a little bit blonder, Jackie could have come up with me, could have pretended, but I probably can't do the accent as well or speak as fast or do what he would do, so I'll just be myself this morning. Um, but we really just loved our time here and just left thinking what a special community this is. Um, and just loved probably things that you've become used to, just uh, the worship culture here, just the culture of prayer here, the warmth of people here, uh, just the amazing like kids' church you guys have, and just the way you include the kids, really beautiful thing. So thanks for having us back. I was actually in Temecula on Thursday night as well, so I feel like Temecula is becoming a second home, which is a really, really cool thing. So thanks for having me back. My wife and daughter are in Uptown today, just kind of being with our church family, which we're still getting settled into and getting used to, but it's a privilege to be preaching in part of your summer in the Psalms series, which I love so much. So we're going to get straight into Psalm 63. If you've got a Bible, you can turn there, um, otherwise it'll be up on the screen. I'm going to be reading from the NIV today, which might be different for some of you, but just because I love the way some of those verses are just phrased and written in the NIV. It's a Bible I read for probably about eight years, so just some of those things get stuck in you in um, the translation you're used to. But this is a really interesting passage of scripture, um, and you'll see why in just a second. So before we read it, I want to share a little bit of context before we kind of get into the intro, because it is just kind of wild what is going on in Psalm 63. This is written by David, one of the well-known kind of heroes or characters of the scriptures. Um, he's the one who slew Goliath. He was the king of Israel for a while. And the subtitle in my Bible to the psalm is when he was in the desert or when he was in the wilderness in Judah. Now, I'm new to California. I'm new to the fact that I live in a desert now, which is like a really interesting thing. Driving through Temecula the other day, I'm amazed at how dry this place is. Um, but what's going on here in Psalm 63 is very different to being in Temecula or going to Palm Springs on vacation. It's a very different story that's going on with David. He's not lying by the pool. He's not there to see like the different beautiful flora and fauna that the desert has to offer. He is fleeing for his life. David is on the run. 
He's scared, he's uncertain, he doesn't know what the future holds, he is running for his life. And the sad part of the story is this actually happened to David a few times in his life. So we don't know necessarily as we come to this which one this is. You know, which one of those times that David had to flee are we looking at today in Psalm 63? But we do get a bit of a hint in verse 11. In verse 11, David calls himself the king. And the only time that we know of, and again, it's one of those guys who's on the run a few times for his life. The only time we know of that he was on the run as king of Israel was when his son Absalom, probably his favorite child, his beloved boy, overthrew the kingdom, took over from him, scared him away, and tried to kill him. What a nightmare as a parent. I don't know what your family is like, but that is a rough situation to be in. My daughter is two and a quarter years old. She's gonna pop up in the sermon a little bit today. I cannot imagine if in 20 years' time, my beautiful little girl with these little bunches in her hair was chasing me down, trying to take me out. That I was scared of my daughter, uncertain about what my daughter was going to do. So in this passage, David calls himself king. But David here in Psalm 63 has lost everything. He's lost absolutely everything. And I wanna say that because as we approach this passage today, David is not like this flat, two-dimensional character. He is a real man who really lived, had real feelings and emotions, and would have felt the fear and uncertainty of this moment. This is a visceral, palpable situation that he's in where he doesn't know what his future holds. And I, hate, I would hate it if as we read this today, we just think, oh, this is a story you know, written down in a book. This is a man who lived. Put yourself in his shoes. Try and be empathetic for the situation that he finds himself in. In Psalm 63, David has lost his job. He's lost his title. He was the king. He might still be the rightful king, but right now his son has taken the throne and the kingdom and everything from him. He's unemployed. On top of that, you can imagine the existential identity stuff that he's going through. Like, well, I've been the king of Israel for this really long period of time, and now I'm not that anymore. I don't have all the safety and security of being king and the kingdom and the palace and all of that. I'm on the run. I'm in the desert. I'm hiding out. It's an existential wrestle he's going through. On top of that, he's lost his power, his family, his wealth. He's lost his relationship with his favorite son. He's lost his safety and peace. He's running scared. His life has been ruined. David's life is ruined in Psalm 63. So these words in this psalm are the words and prayers of someone who has lost everything. Maybe some of you can resonate with this. Maybe you've experienced this. Maybe you've been in David's situation. But these are the words and prayers of someone who've lost everything. So in light of that, what would you expect David to say? As we come to the psalm, what would you expect to find inside Psalm 63 if you lost everything, if everything was taken from you, if the future was uncertain, if you didn't know how much longer you were going to live, what would you put into your psalm? If this was like a GC evening or something, if this was like an equipping night, I might say, let's take 20 minutes to write down the psalm that you would pray, what you would say to God in this moment. Maybe it's something some of you could do this week, but I'm going to ruin it in a second by reading what David says. But what would you pray if you were in David's shoes? This is what he says, Psalm 63 verse one. God, you are my God. I eagerly seek you. I thirst for you. My body faints for you in a land that is dry, desolate, and without water. So I gaze on you in the sanctuary to see your strength and your glory. My lips will glorify you because your faithful love is better than life. So I will bless you as long as I live. At your name, I will lift up my hands. You satisfy me as with rich food. My mouth will praise you with joyful lips. When I think of you as I lie on my bed, I meditate on you during the night watches because you are my helper. I will rejoice in the shadow of your wings. I follow close to you. Your right hand holds onto me. But those who intend to destroy my life will go into the depths of the earth. They will be given over to the power of the sword. They will become a meal for jackals. But the king will rejoice in God. All who swear by him will boast, for the mouths of lies will be shut. Obviously, I've shared with you the situation David is in. He's on the run for his life. So you can understand that the psalm starts with a bit of a lament. 
David pouring out his heart before God. David pouring out his concerns before God. And as I said, I think last time I was here, they estimate that the Psalms are about 60% lament. So as you go through them, sometimes they can be a real killjoy, you know. This starts with a bit of a lament, but it ends in rejoicing. It ends in joy, which is probably what we wouldn't expect in a psalm like this. Notice this in verse 11, the final verse. But the king will rejoice in God. All who swear by him will boast, for the mouths of liars will be shut. David, who has lost everything that he holds dear, everything that matters to him or that would matter to you or I, he's lost everything. He, he finishes this prayer of lament with his head up straight. Encouraged, confident, not, not burdened. His heart isn't weighed down by what is going on. His back is up straight. He's confident before God. He's at peace. He's rejoicing. He's not complaining, which is surprising to me as I read the psalm. And here he calls himself king, which he is or he was. He was the rightful king of Israel, but he's no longer on the throne. He's like really in this topsy-turvy situation. But he's been stripped of everything that he has known and loved and the role he's played for such a long time by his son. But here he says, he calls himself the king. He still knows who he is. He still knows what God has called him to do. He's not letting the circumstances he is facing define him. He's letting God define him. That's a huge thing to be able to do. He is not being defined by his circumstances. He's being defined by God. He's not being defined by success or failure, by loss or difficulties, defined by God. And I wanted to ask you just for a second before we carry on here, just to take a moment to think, are there any situations in your life, any circumstances that you're experiencing, anything externally which is happening to you, which is trying to define you? A circumstance you find yourself in that is trying to redefine how you see yourself, which is different to what God says about you. If you're not sure what God says of you, Ephesians chapter one is a great chapter to go to and just underline. Who am I in Christ? If you're not sure of your identity in him, that's where I'd point you this morning. But David knew, despite what he's facing, despite this overwhelming situation he's in, he's like, I'm the king, God has called me to this, this is who I am. He's not swayed by the circumstances that are external to him. But really this morning what I wanna talk about is how you and I in our lives go from complete defeat and lament like David to a confidence and security like this. Because most of us probably wouldn't be in that space. Most of us probably wouldn't feel like David feels or rejoice like he rejoices at the end of the psalm. In verse one, again, David is on the run from his son. His life is in danger. He's lost everything. He's in the hot, unforgiving desert. He's thirsty, he's hungry, he's uncomfortable, he's in need. Sounds great. <laughs> and what does he say to God? God, you are my God. I eagerly seek you. I thirst for you. My body faints for you. Honest, like just aside here. That would not be my prayer <laughs> if I was David in that situation, you know? I've been following Jesus in some way or other since I was 12, probably truly known him and walked with him since I was about 18. I think if I was to pray my prayer in David's shoes, it would sound more like this. God, you are my God. I've served you faithfully all these years. Where are you? I need help, I need protection, I need food and drink, I need to get out of here. Why am I going through this? Why am I here? Where are you? Why are you letting my son do this? I need you to provide for me. I think that's what my prayer would sound like. I know you guys are much more holy and righteous and sanctified than me. Your prayer would be much more godly, but I would be really frustrated and cross and upset by what I was going through. But David doesn't do that. He doesn't pray and say, God, I need you to provide. He says, I need you. I need you. Which surprises me a little bit. <laughs> it means that David and I clearly don't have the same priorities, or the same way of thinking, or the same perspectives when we go through the challenges of life. So I wanna learn from David's example. I wanna learn from this prayer. I wanna learn so that I can learn to walk in this kind of way. David is seeking God. Verse two to six, he says, so I gaze on you in the sanctuary to see 
your strength and your glory. My lips will glorify you because your faithful love is better than life. I love that line. So I will bless you as long as I live. At your name, I will lift up my hands. You satisfy me as with rich food. My mouth will praise you with joyful lips. So I gaze on you. David's vision of Jesus, his revelation, his perspective, his focus determines his response to what's going on. He's not just looking at his circumstances because that would probably sink him. He's not just looking at what's going on around him. He's gazing on Jesus. He's focused on Jesus. He's seeing Jesus. And that changes his response. David's eyes are set on him, not his circumstances. David looks at God. He sees who he is. He sees God's strength and glory. And I want to ask you that today. What is your focus on? What are you gazing at? What is filling your sight, your vision? What are you seeing right now? What are you seeing in the challenges and circumstances of life? Because when David sees not just God, but God's character and God's power and God's glory, it changes how he responds to his circumstances. I don't know if you know this, but the word in Hebrew for glory is the word kabod. It means weightiness, which I really love. So David sees God and he sees his power and his weightiness. And I love that. Maybe a way we can think about that is, have you ever been in a situation where someone says, that person's words have a weight to them? You know that kind of saying? Or maybe you've been in a room and someone walks in and the whole vibe in the room just changes. Everyone turns to see them and what they're doing and what they're saying and who they're with. It's like there's a weight to their presence which changes the room around them. That's in a sense what David is seeing here. He sees the glory, the kabod, the weight of God. And he's reminded that God is not little, God is great. God is not small, God is powerful, God is glorious which means he can respond differently to his circumstances. God is like that. And when he comes with his problems, when when he's in this very real situation, he sees the glory and power of God and it changes how he responds. He feels lighter, he feels different, he feels relieved. Like, oh yes, I can do this. I'm okay because God is great. I forgot in the midst of everything that's going on, I forgot how great he is. Forgot how powerful he is. Forgot that he's not little, that he's real and powerful and glorious. David sees it again. He's known God, but he sees God in a fresh way. It's like David says in this moment, this thing I'm going through is really hard, but no matter what happens, and he doesn't minimize the circumstances. I love that about the psalm. David owns the reality of the pain of what he's going through. But no matter what happens, I'm gonna be fine because of God. In fact, in verse three, he says it like this. My lips will glorify you because your faithful love is better than life. I feel like that would be the takeaway I'd love you to have from today, to go and meditate on that line. Your faithful love is better than life. Probably one of my favorite phrases in the Bible. David can say that when everything has been stripped away from him. Everything has been taken. Every comfort, every security is gone. He says, your faithful love is better than life. Tim Keller, a pastor from New York, preaching on this verse, says this about it. He says, what is so important to you that if you lose it, life would be meaningless? David looks at God and says, you are better than life. And I wanna ask you again to answer this if you can where you're sitting today. What for you if it was to be taken away from you, if you didn't get it, if you lost it, would make your life meaningless, would strip away your joy. Because that is the thing that we worship, that is the thing that our hope is in, that is the thing we're looking to for salvation, that is the thing that our gaze and hope is in, that is our life. I um, really enjoy movies, Um, I'm sure some of you guys do too. I actually did film studies at university, it was great. And I sometimes just think in like those stereotypes or tropes that you'll see in a different film. And when I was thinking about this line here, I was just thinking of like a family sitcom, you know, like one of those kind of 
feel-good family films. You can see mom and dad sitting in the lounge, maybe with some of the kids, and then their teenage child comes through the door and slams the door and throws down their bag and just marches upstairs and goes down into the room and just, like, what is a good word? Flumps onto the bed, you know? I don't know, what's an American word for that? I'd say that back up. Just flops. Flops is a good word. I don't know what flump means. Flops onto the bed, maybe even screams into the pillow. Ah! Just so frustrated and upset from the day. I'm sure you've seen that in a sitcom or a movie somewhere. And mom and dad look at each other and they go, who's got it this time, you know? Mom goes upstairs, knocks on the door. Can I come in? Is everything okay? (laughs) My life is over. You can picture that, you know? And something has gone on at school that day that's deeply upset them. Maybe it was that they were humiliated in front of other kids at school. Maybe it was that they didn't get that scholarship to the university they wanted to go to. Maybe it's that that person they liked doesn't like them back. Maybe it's that they didn't get a part in the play or actually they didn't make the team. Whatever it is that for them was life, it's been stripped away from them. It's gone, they don't have it. My life is over. I think it's easy to kind of use an example like that and like make fun of like that teenage example, you know. But we're exactly the same as we get older. (laughs) The things that we're after might look different and maybe we respond in a more sophisticated way and don't slam the door or flump onto the bed or whatever it is, you know. But we still feel like that. If I have this, I have life. If I lose this, my life is over. What is that for you? We so easily put our hope into these things. We believe that the lie, we believe the lie that this is my life. We invest everything into this thing. If I have it, I have everything. If I lose it, I have nothing. This is my life. And for David, who has lost everything, he's able to say God is the only one, God is the only thing, big enough, glorious enough, powerful enough that that can be true that I can say he is my life. And though everything is stripped from me, my life is not over. His hope isn't in a good job or a good salary or an attractive partner or that house or car or outfit or sex or pleasure or experience or traveling to a place that just seems really exciting and foreign and adventurous, not success or fame or glory or applause, nothing but God alone. Do you believe that today? Do you believe what Psalm 63 is saying, what, what David had learned? That your love, your, your love is better than life. David has experienced this reality over the years. I want to remind you, David has been in this situation before. Remember? He'd been on the run for his life in the desert, not hiding from his son, hiding from his boss, his king, Saul who he had served and taken care of. And now Saul has gotten jealous of him because David's been successful and people are singing songs about him. People want to spend time around David. So Saul takes his soldiers and tries to kill David. And he has to hide out. He was a younger man at the time. I don't know in that desert what his prayers were like. I don't know in that moment what his psalms he might have written. I wish I'd looked that up. It would be interesting to compare a psalm from the first time to the psalm, Psalm 63. But David has experienced this before, and as a man with experience, he knows that in this moment, he needs Jesus. He had everything when he was king. Everything you can imagine. Every resource, everything you might want, everything at his disposal. He doesn't say, I wish I had that stuff. I wish I had what I had back at the palace. He says, I wish I had you, I'm hungry for you, I'm thirsty for you. Not even food or water. God, you are the one I want. You are my life. The Lord is his life. And for us this morning, maybe the invitation of Psalm 63 is to gaze again on the face of the Lord, to see this truth, his his glory, his power, his beauty, the fact that he satisfies, that he is our life. Maybe today we need to look on him because our gaze has drifted to other things. Maybe we need to be reminded of something that's become familiar to us. Um, If you met my wife three weeks ago when we were here, 
you would have noticed that her accent is a hot mess. <laughs> she um, was born in the UK, lived here for a while, went back to the UK, moved to Zimbabwe, moved to South Africa, moved back here for a while, back to South Africa, and now we live in San Diego. Um, so she's had an interesting life. But because she was in England so much, we've watched quite a few English shows. I don't know, any BBC fans here today? Oh, Temecula, come alive, BBC. No, there we go. See that hand, I see that. Okay, we're going. Um, BBC puts out some really, really good TV. But there's a show that this year is celebrating 45 years on the air. It's called The Antiques Roadshow. There's a few fans in the house today. Um, Listen, I've only watched a few episodes. I don't want to pretend I'm a big uh, AR fan. But um, it's a really interesting show. Basically, these experts travel around the UK, and people bring their heirlooms, their trinkets, just something they found in the closet or attic, and they say, is this worth anything? Is this special? Is this rare? You know, I've got this from my great-great-grandfather. Like, does this mean anything? And sometimes it does. Often it's just junk, or it's not going to get them much money. But you can go Google this story. The most valuable find ever on the Antiques Roadshow is really interesting. This retired farmer named Terry Nourish had this item in his home that his father had purchased in 1946, along with just a whole bunch of other items for 100 pounds. So this jardiniere that he gets, this big vase, five foot vase, uh, I'm basically five foot, so pretty much think my heart. Uh, he buys all of these items for 100 pounds and brings them all home and they just get scattered around in the family. And at times, Terry Nourish's family would sometimes use this beautiful vase for flowers. At other times, what would happen is the kids used it as a goal when they played football or soccer in the house. So they're kicking the ball against this thing. They're like, ah, it's fine, it's old, it doesn't matter at all. Unknown to the family, the Chardinier had been designed by Christoffel in Paris way back in the day. Any Christoffel fans here today? He was just a genius ahead of his time. What a man. Um, you can look, it's, I don't know him at all. Then in 1991, Terry Nourish just gets this into his head. I'm going to take the Chardonnay and just have it valued to see if it's anything. And the Antiques Roadshow guys look at it and they go, cool, probably 10,000 pounds, maybe $12,000 in today's money. You know, we, we reckon it's valued there. And he goes, that's amazing. We're going to stop putting plants in it. We're going to stop the kids kicking the ball against it. This is worth quite a bit of money. And then for some reason, the article didn't tell me why, but for some reason, 20 years later, he decides we're going to auction this. So at Christie's in London in 2012, this Chardinier goes on auction, and the first bid comes in at 100,000 pounds. First bid. Quite a jump from 10 grand, you know. It eventually sells for 668,000 pounds, over $800,000 in today's money. Just absolutely wild. You can imagine he's like, you kids, I'm so glad you didn't break that vase. I can't believe it. But what struck me about this is something that the family had been so familiar with. It had been in the home since the 40s. The kids played with it. It had no value to them. It was just in the background of their lives the whole time. This thing that was part of their lives, all of a sudden, gets reevaluated and valued by these experts, and they see that all along, this thing had been in our home, and it is worth, this will change our lives. This will fill us with joy. Our family will be different forever because of the jardinier and the sale of it. And David shows us this example in Psalm 63. He knows God. He's familiar with God comes to gatherings on Sundays, he's in a GC, serves in a ministry in the church. God is a part of his life. There's a lot going on and God is there and God's always a part of what's going on and God's familiar, but it takes a moment like this for him to refocus and reevaluate and see the true value and glory and power of God that is better than life. Your faithful love is better than life. And for some of us, I'm sure that's true this morning. Jesus has been a part of your life for a long time. I grew up going to church. Jesus has been a part of my life for a long time. It's very easy that he's in the background, you're just kicking the ball against him, you're using him as a soccer goal, planting some flowers in him. He's a part of your home life, he's a part of what's going on, but we lose sight of the true value of Jesus in our lives. And we need to be reminded, we need to gaze again, we need to see 
that we can lose everything, but if we have him, we still have all that we need. David gazes at God in Psalm 63, and he's reminded of his beautiful value. He'd been getting by before on this unevaluated, familiar faith, but in this moment, he has great need. In this moment of suffering, of uncertainty, of near death, he needs a God who is greater than just a background figure in his life. He needs a God who can help. He needs a God who is big and great enough to satisfy him out in the desert. So he really looks at God. And we see here in these verses that he sees God and in the desert he raises his hands in worship to him. He sees his glory and power and he praises God. And the next verse is this, verse five. You satisfy me as with rich food. Now again, it's hot, it's the desert, he's hungry, he's thirsty, it's a rough situation. You can imagine going from the king's palace and what he was eating there to, I don't know, the lizards and sand he's eating out in the desert, it's not great. But he's able to say in verse five, you satisfy me as with rich food. When we moved to San Diego, people literally said, congratulations. <laughs> We're like, okay, that's great. We're like, what should we do with, you know, like what do we do here? Everyone, just go to this restaurant, go eat here. This food is amazing, go to this place. And we have, we've eaten very well. <laughs> We've been satisfied as with rich food. And you know those times where you feast or you're at a buffet or you just have a great meal. You feel full, you feel tired, you feel happy. I'm getting to that age now where I get indigestion and acid reflux. Let's pop some pills to kind of take care of all of that. But he's saying, I am satisfied in the desert on the run for my life with God as with rich food. You're all I need. God, you satisfy me. In our culture and the world around us, I think there are so many things that are offered to us, promised to us, saying this will satisfy, this will meet your needs, this will give you what you want. And we're pulled in all of these different competing directions. Our culture preaches to us, it evangelizes us, it tries to convert us to its value system and say this is what will satisfy. And when we get those things, the satisfaction is always short-lived. And I think many of us have felt this over the last few years, which have been difficult years. The things which we hoped would please us just haven't or, or that pleasure has been short-lived. But David, who had all of those things, is saying to us, Jesus and his love is better than life. He is the one that we need. Even in the worst times, even in the darkest times, he is the one that fully satisfies us even when everything else is stripped away. So I wanna ask you guys another question. Have you come to Jesus, and if you have, have you left that other stuff behind? Have you been able to believe the truth that he satisfies, or are you still believing the lie that those other things might meet your needs in a way that he can't? Jesus never promises to satisfy us with the things that our culture offers us. He never says that to us, but he satisfies our greatest needs in himself, with salvation, with forgiveness, with freedom, with joy, with new life, with eternal hope, with purpose, meaning, and truth. And he does this in himself. Jesus does this in himself, but he only does it when we come to him like King David has done in Psalm 63. Now just to remind you of something, because I've been sharing the good news. David's circumstances haven't changed. He's still in the desert. He's still on the run. His future is still uncertain. But in that place, in that difficulty, he says, I am satisfied in you, God. His circumstances haven't changed, but his perspective has. He is praising and he is satisfied because of what he has seen when he has seen God, that God is better than life. But I just wanna say he would still love his circumstances to change. I mean, David's not a sadist. You know, he would love his circumstances to change. He never says here, oh, I'm fine in the desert, let me stay here. No, he says, despite where I am, Jesus is enough and I can be satisfied in him. No matter what may come my way, I still have God, even if everything else is taken from me. Now, one of the things I love about the Psalms is their honesty. Because a lot of what I'm saying today is very positive. And if you're in a hard situation right now, it could be hard to grab hold of this. 
So I love the honesty of the Psalms. They're, they're raw. They're very real about pain and emotion. And we see this so clearly in verse six. Even as David has gazed on God and been satisfied, we see that he is still anxious and stressed. Verse six, when I think of you as I lie on my bed, I meditate on you during the night watches. What do you think that means? That he can't sleep. He's got too much going on in his mind. He's got too much going on in his heart. He is saturated with anxiety and stress and uncertainty, even though he is satisfied in God, which is probably something a lot of us can relate to. David is up all night through the night watches. Those were the military changes of God that happened throughout the night. So we might just say each hour on the hour, you know, 10, 11, 12, 1, 2, 3. As those different moments come, David is up, but he's not tossing and turning. His gaze is on God and he's bringing those things to God in prayer. He's not just meditating on those things. He's meditating on God in the midst of a real struggle and difficulty. His difficulty does not go away, he can't sleep, but God is the one that he turns to in his difficulty. And he says this, verse seven, because you are my helper, I will rejoice in the shadow of your wings. I will follow close to you, your right hand holds onto me. Uh, The ESV translates verse eight like this, my soul clings to you, your right hand upholds me. And I just love that, my soul clings to you. There's a bunch of different pictures of God here. You could go and kind of write them down. But there is this picture here of God as our helper, which is obviously what David needs in this moment of his life. He needs a helper. And he finds that help in the shadow of God's wings. Now, think of a mother hen. That's kind of the picture we've got here. I know God is our father. I know Jesus teaches us to pray to our father in heaven. But this is a beautiful maternal picture of God here like a hen protecting her chicks under the feathers, you know, under the wings. So David goes to be protected by God in this challenging moment. I mentioned August earlier, the one I'm hoping in 20 years isn't trying to take me out. She's two and a quarter, she's so cute. And for the last year, whenever she gets scared, she runs to Dada. So our old apartment in Durban, the intercom would buzz and she'd get a fright and she'd have this look of panic on her face, and she would just run to me, because she knows that if she's with Dada, she is safe. Or she hears a noise and doesn't know what it is, or something happens and she's confused, or or something drops, or she hurts herself, and she runs to me, because she knows if she's with me, she's safe. And I had these moments where I would try to put her down. (laughs) I would try to put her down. And she would wrap her legs around me. She was cling- her soul was clinging to me because she did not want to let go yet. She felt safe with me. She wanted to be with me. It was so beautiful seeing Shepherd just <laughs> on Mark's chest, just wrapped around him earlier. It was the most beautiful thing. And here David in his situation is speaking about something similar. Like a child that knows that they're safe in the presence of their father So David is saying, actually my soul clings to God. Even though I'm not safe, if I'm with my father, no matter what happens, I am safe. And because of this, because of who God is, David can say this. But those who intend to destroy my life will go into the depths of the earth. They'll be given over to the power of the sword. They will become a meal for jackals. But the king, David, will rejoice in God. All who swear by him will boast, for the mouths of liars will be shut. Even though he finds satisfaction in God, even though his soul clings to God, David doesn't know what the future holds for him. He doesn't know if Absalom and his soldiers are gonna find him that day, a couple of hours and a couple of days' time. He doesn't know if he will live or die. He doesn't know if he'll ever see the palace again. He doesn't know what his future holds at all but he rejoices even though the future is uncertain. He rejoices because even though he doesn't know what will come, he is with God. And even if the worst comes for him, even if he loses his life, even if he is killed, even if he is taken out, he knows that God is good and that God is just and that God is kind and that God will do what is right and that he can trust his life and his future in God's hands. So he rejoices in God. And restored to Mecula this morning as we've gone through Psalm 63, 
Maybe read it through and pray it through a little bit more this week just to get this into your heart. I want to encourage you. I don't know what the rest of this year holds for you or next year or the year after or in 10 years' time. I don't know. But what David shows us in Psalm 63 is that God is good despite our circumstances. So will you seek him? Will you turn your attention to gaze on his face and see him despite your circumstances? Will you choose to let him define who you are despite your circumstances? Will you choose to experience that his faithful love is better than life? Will you allow your soul to cling to him? Will you be satisfied in him? And will you together become the kind of church Psalm 63 is talking about? Community satisfied in Jesus. Amen. Why don't I just pray for you guys for a second before here it comes up. And I just ask you, Lord, that this morning, as I've said many different things, I just ask you, Holy Spirit, to come and settle on us as a people now. And I pray for everyone in this room, regardless of circumstances, present or past, that you would speak and that everyone would leave here knowing what you're saying to them, with something highlighted, with something clear. And I also ask you, Lord, that everyone would respond to what you're saying and respond to you now and find that same comfort and peace and joy and satisfaction inside of you. Amen. Thank you, Grant. I invite you to stand if you're able. If you're on the prayer team, please make your way over to the side of the room over here. Psalm 63, David is on the run. He's fleeing. He's got a rough situation on his hands. And today, we got to see how he handled it. I'm sure that if we could go around the room, if we had time, I bet you every single person in this room has a rough situation that you're dealing with in some shape, form, or fashion. And I just want you to think about, how do I handle those situations? How do I actually handle it? I think for a lot of us, we can hold it in. We can just hold everything in. Others of us, I got it. I got this. You just handle it. For others of us, it's just missile. I'm fine. We're fine. Everything's fine. Everything is awesome. For others of us, we distract ourselves, numb ourselves, entertain ourselves. And for others of us, we are tempted to just double down on crushing it in life. And I love the way that this morning's message, the way that Grant set it up, David didn't do any of those things. He practically seeked, sought, sought the face of Jesus. And I just want to encourage you today, this might be a counter-cultural practice for you. And if it is, wonderful. There is a way to practically seek his face today. You can go pray. You can go get prayer. Specifically, I want to encourage you, and you can get prayer for whatever you need, anything. But there's two, two, I believe, opportunities this morning to respond. If you need a change in either perspective or your circumstances, go get prayer for whatever you're facing. Perspective to see Jesus as truly valuable on the one hand. Or on the other hand, like Grant was talking about, there's a reality that David was facing a difficult situation. You might be too. It's okay to pray for a change in that. So if you need a change in perspective or if you need a change in your circumstances, go get prayer. This is a practical way to seek his face. It's a practical way to cling to your dad, to your father in heaven, who loves you, who sent his son for you, who is making everything new slowly. And one day we'll see the fullness of that. But today, it's a slow process of learning to seek his face amidst the circumstances that we face in life. So I want to encourage you, go get prayer. Change in perspective and circumstance. For everyone else, it's a time to respond in, in song. We get to sing to him. The same God whom David was crying out to, you can cry out to today in song. So let's, let's sing together.
beautiful. We're going to keep singing in a minute, but I've been thinking about something pretty much all morning. I was recently in uh, San Clemente where my family has been staying. My family's in from Puerto Rico where we're from. They're visiting. And uh, I was told a story about a baseball player who went and visited uh, this family once. Back in the day, Puerto Rico had what are called winter leagues. Um, you guys can grab a seat, actually, and then I'll, we'll stand up in a minute before we finish. In Puerto Rico, they had what were called the baseball winter leagues. Back decades ago, before major league players made millions of dollars, guys had to work over the, over the Christmas break. They couldn't afford to just stay at home unless you're one of the top guys. So a lot of guys went to Puerto Rico to play ball in the winter. And one of those ball players went and visited a family member of these family friends of ours. This family member lived on an island off the island, and this baseball player went and visited, spent a day there, signed a ball and all that stuff. As it turns out, the ball was lost, kind of thrown away. And I was thinking about the antique roadshow. <laughs> this ball player, they just didn't know. It was Satchel Paige, who's arguably the greatest pitcher of all time. If you don't know who Satchel Paige is, look him up later. Maybe the greatest, most talented pitcher to ever pick up a baseball. Went to this person's house, signed the ball, left all this memorabilia, and it was discarded. Yeah, if you're a baseball fan like me, like, it belongs in museums. It could be in my, my personal collection right now. But um, my point, why do I mention this? My point in bringing this up is I, I've been thinking about this. this. I just have like this sense, and I could be wrong, but I have this sense that there could be people here, at least one person where you've experienced like a visitation from Jesus in your life, where Jesus has been near, he's drawn close, but then there's a sense in which, for whatever reason, now there's distance. Maybe Jesus has been kind of discarded. And you're kind of becoming more aware this morning of like, oh my gosh, he's valuable. Just like Brent Grant was saying, like, He's beautiful. He's worthy. And if that's you, I just want you to know, I just, I just have this sense that like Jesus knows and he's, Satchel Page is long gone. Never get that opportunity again. But that's not true with Jesus. He's alive. And he wants to extend forgiveness like you didn't know. And he wants to receive you again. So if that resonates with you, I just want to encourage you to go get prayer. If you feel like Jesus has been kind of discarded in your life, but you see his value now, go get prayer. I'll be up here too. I'd be happy to pray for you if that resonates with you. I'm going to invite you to stand. We're going to sing one more song. And I just want you to, if that's you, go get prayer. If not, I want you to consider him, Jesus, who left his throne in heaven to come and become poor, who loved us to the point of laying down his life for us, who now rules and reigns in everything, every day, there's a little bit more and more of this world that's becoming what it will be, starting with you, starting with me, starting with us, starting with the church across time and space. This is Jesus, and he's here, and he is for you, and he is with you. Whatever you're facing, he's glorious. So I just want to encourage you to raise your voice. Sing to him, just as we've been doing all morning, because he's worthy. Let's keep going. Has there ever been anyone like you? You are worthy, Jesus. Thank you for this perspective that you give us today. You are worthy. You're worthy of it all. We're grateful to you, Jesus, that your glory changes the atmosphere in this room, in our lives, that we can be people who can taste what it's like to go from defeat to confidence like David in the psalm, to be defined by your love, not by our circumstances, and to have hope in the midst of really painful and difficult circumstances because we can lose everything, yet have everything if we have the one thing, Jesus, you. God, we love you. We're grateful to you. And we thank you. And it's in your name we pray. Amen. You guys can grab a seat. I'm going to close this out here. I think today's an invitation for us as a church 
to really see the value, the true value of Jesus in our lives. Like the, what did you call it? Jardinier, Boz, or Vase. Like we have that. We have him. And so today, my prayer for, for you, for me, for all of us, is that we would see the value of what we have. We have that boss. We have, you know, we can have a visitation uh, from Jesus anytime we want in the midst of our painful and broken circumstances. No matter what you've done, no matter what you've been through, you're not too far, you're not too messed up. You are invited. He's a king who sits on the throne of grace. He's not out to destroy you. He's out to redeem you, to rescue you, to restore you to himself so that you might experience abundant life. I just want to encourage you to seek him. Even this week, Grant was talking about maybe like chewing on Psalm 63 during the week. I want to invite you to do that. I think it'll pay benefits for you, for your family, for your walk with Jesus. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you. <clears throat> thank you that you are worthy. Thank you that you, in your life, in your death, in your resurrection, you never lost sight of what mattered most. God held you. Jesus, like the Father held your hand through the whole, through your whole life, and then you were crushed on the cross for us so that we might live, so that we might walk as children with our Father hand in hand through life clinging even, sometimes jumping into your arms because we're scared. Knowing that you love us, that you don't resent us, that you don't condemn us, but you love us. You love to restore us. You love to give us confidence in the midst of scary situations. You love to protect us. You're our refuge, our rock, our savior. Thank you, God. And I pray that this week that we would all experience you in that way, that we would look to Jesus that we'd experience you as our safe refuge in this world. God, we love you and we thank you. Would you name me pray? Amen. Right, we're going to do a soft close right now. What that means is we've got 15 minutes. It's 11.45 right now. At 12 o'clock, if you've got children, please go pick them up by 12. Uh, otherwise, you have 15 minutes to move about the cabin. If you want to go get prayer, we still have people who... Grant like that one. I use that one all the time. They don't think it's funny anymore. It's cool. Um, they can, you can go. We've got people who would love to pray for you over here on the side. We've also, I'll be up here if, if you would like prayer. There are people in this room who you might just need to chat with. People that maybe have been on your heart this morning to pray for. Go do it. If you just need to go get lunch, go do that too. We love you. Enjoy your morning.